I am like serious. Are you kidding me? Oops. I think I dropped it too far. Oh now. dear lord. Let me see. Oh yeah. It is crazy how often I talk at the exact same time. Track after track after track. Oh yeah. Now we can actually hear something. Alright, that's good. So are a little bit better now. One of my levels is like strange, but I voice them. Try pelosives, like bees and peas and things like that. Oh, is that a bee Really loud. I myself at the moment. I can hear myself. I can hear myself. Yeah, we're definitely going to hear that. Not as loudly as I can hear, but I see you're distracted by the possibility of this. Even circumstances are never single one of you to the pilot episode of the new sounds curious podcast it is brought to you with much love by the banshee media podcast network and sounds curious is dedicated to the adventurous listener so let me welcome you listener you are someone who has gone online and found podcasts to listen to you obviously have a curious mind you have some time to kill and perhaps you are also interested in music yourself or the world of sound maybe you like to go for long walks in the forest and listen to the birds maybe you like listening to the sounds of the trains at night maybe you spend time by a river so you can hear the water you are a listener in the world you want to hear things And once you're a listener, it changes you. Now, I'm not talking about hearing. Obviously, hearing is something different from listening. We can close our eyes, but we cannot close our ears. So, that's why alarm clocks work. And that's also why sound is so powerful. It's why it can stop us in our tracks sometimes. It's why hearing the right song at the right moment can change your life. Sound is everything. To quote Shakespeare, the rest is silence. Doesn't seem like a big deal. But once you start listening to everything, it changes you. I mean, we take for granted that we see everything, even though we don't, and we filter out most of it. But we hardly ever think about the fact that we listen to everything. Now we can close our eyes to sleep, but we never close our ears. It's why when they want to disorient you, they blast music at you 24 hours a day. Because sound is overwhelming. It can take you to places you've never been. It can introduce you to feelings that you have never known. Or maybe you knew but were just too afraid to feel. And then you hear that piece of music and 
you suddenly have a place to put it. I always describe the job of being a musician as someone who makes containers for people's emotions, gives them places to put it. You know, that's why we sing in church. That's why we sing when things are awful. That's why losing your voice is such a scary, scary thing. Because making music means that you'll always have a place to put whatever you're feeling and you can be brave and you can be brave for other people. So as a listener, you know that you're alive in this world. And you know the more deeply you listen, the more deeply the world can change you. So we aim to bring you the very best, interesting, intriguing, challenging sometimes, sure, but mostly fascinating aspects of the world of sound, from field recordings in distant locations to contemporary music and innovative new voices and music that you may not have heard to experimental practices and sound art, all the ways in which sound is penetrating our culture. I don't know when you're listening to my voice, and I know that physically you are not here with me, but I'm going to imagine myself for a second in your shoes. Are you listening to me in headphones while you're at work? Are you listening to me through the speakers while you cut up carrots for dinner? Are you somewhere that's full of people and noise and chaos? Or are you somewhere very quiet where you can hear the birds and my voice is accompanying the sounds of your day? Well, no matter what you're doing, thank you for listening Not just for listening to this, but for listening in general and for being listeners. You found this podcast somewhere, and I'm glad you did. Uh, Podcast, the DVR for your radio. Hopefully the Banshee Media Podcast Network will be a part of that. We are dedicated to fearless exploration of the world of sound. We want to bring you each week the most amazing sounds in contemporary composition and improvisation and sound art and noise art and field recordings and environmental recordings and archive recordings. We want to show you where you can find these things on the web. We want to turn you into an explorer of the world of sound. We want to give you the food that your hungry ears desire. So we are going to scour the world to find the most interesting and exciting new things to hear. Not just because they're new, but because they're amazing. And we're going to present them to you in context. We're going to talk about them. We're going to interview the people who've made the recordings. We're going to interview the composers who made the music. We're going to talk to the performers and the critics and the scholars and the lovers of music, all of whom join into the enormous conversation that is sound in culture. So sit back and strap in and put on your goggles if you are so inclined. Um... We're going to begin this first episode 
this pilot episode of Sounds Curious starting really close to home. Uh, the nicest thing about traveling is that it teaches you more about your home. And since this particular podcast is not brought to you by someone with a history in radio, it's not brought to you by someone who is a fan or has come up through YouTube. It's brought to you by a composer, somebody who has written music and created sound art and made media art for 30 years. And I am a lover of all things chaotic and serene, of all things in your face and totally subtle. Sound, media, audio, music, it's all changed my life. Becoming a listener, someone who seeks out sounds, has changed me in such a fundamental way that I cannot be more excited about the prospect of listening and creating a community around a podcast network that is dedicated to listening. So welcome, listener. You're a very special person around here. You're brave and you're innovative and we're really glad to have you around. So today on Sounds Curious, we're going to start really close to home for the podcast. We're going to start with my own music. Now, Sympathetic Resonance is a piece that I composed between 2014 and 2016. It was my way of celebrating my long-term relationship with the instrument, the piano. Having started as a pianist and having gone from being a pianist to being a composer and then from being a composer to being an electronic composer and an electroacoustic composer to finally being an improviser who uses a lot of extended techniques. So I started to sound in my performances and my compositions much more like my old electronic music. I was able to create more of the sounds using the live instrument than I had been able to previously and I was able to match some of the 
innovative timbres and unique sound profiles that I used to only be able to accomplish in the studio using the piano. So this was my way of celebrating everything the piano has been in my life all the stages of the development that I've gone through as a musician, the influence of the piano in the history of Western music for all the composers that I studied and emulated, all of the musicians that I admired. Certainly the piano has been one of the longest lasting influences in my life. It's been with me longer than anything. I began piano lessons when I was nine. I started my musical life as a pianist and I studied very long and very hard to be a pianist. And in the end, I have to confess I was moderately okay. Uh, My classical chops never got to the place that I really wanted them. But they did lead me in some interesting directions. And so as a young musician, I moved to France to pursue studies in music and to learn the language and educate myself. And I was accepted into the National Conservatory in Nantes. In my lack of French knowledge and my eagerness to pursue music studies, I went to a class called Écriture. Little did I know that meant composition. Uh, It was a wonderful class um, and I was encouraged to uh, pursue uh, La Musique Concrète as well, electronic music composition while I was there. They had an early electronic studio. So I, in essence, stumbled into a life as a composer through my life as a pianist. And so in 2014, when I decided to do a little reflecting on my history with the instrument, uh, it seemed that a composition was the best way to do that. So I wanted to compose a piece that not only celebrated my own relationship to the instrument as a pianist, but also my relationship to the instrument as a composer. The relationship of the instrument itself to the history of Western music, the way that it shaped everything from our tuning systems to our theoretical systems. Dealing with my own history as a pianist, there is certainly a moment in which I turn away from classical music. I begin as a classical pianist, because really, ultimately, that's what I thought there was. Uh, I didn't come from a musical household. I was not aware of a lot of other kinds of music. So when I started studying piano, I started studying classical. Several years into my compositional studies, I started to open up a bit in my relationship with piano, and I started to sit down and just play. Um, yeah, that means improvisation, but I didn't even have that word at the time. One day I discovered that my love of jazz, and particularly free jazz, late jazz, jazz after bebop, jazz that is as complex and chaotic as the society that produced it, as the community that produced it against the society that produced it, And suddenly the voice of musical rebellion was clear to me and I never looked back. Now, if you had told me when I was a 10-year-old piano student that one day I would walk out on stage every single time I played and not have an idea in my head about what I was going to do, maybe a plan, maybe a structure, maybe some materials I was working with, but never ever 
a moment-to-moment plan, the way a musical score plans your every single move from beginning to end. That was liberation. But as a composer, I still loved composing music, so I started composing things for myself to improvise against, and I started to layer my own history, my own performance, into my composition, and then layer the history of the instrument on top of that. Now, what do I mean by layering the history of the instrument on top of that? Well, the first piece that... I have selected to talk about today is the first movement of sympathetic resonance. It's called attack. Now that might sound like, huh, you know, attack. Um, but it's actually because the four movements of the suite are named after the four parts of every individual sound, the attack, the sustain, the decay, and the release. The composer Mario Davidovsky wrote a series of pieces called Synchronisms, and they were musical compositions that tried to synchronize, hence the name, the performance of live acoustic instruments that, of course, relied upon performers who could perform very complex 20th century compositions, who could also do them with an electronic tape. Now, that doesn't sound very difficult to us nowadays because we live in the age of interactive electronics. But in the day, back in the day, when we only had very primitive recording and playback technologies, composing for both electronics and instruments was very difficult, mostly because No performer, no matter how impeccable their internal clock, can be as accurate as an electronic tape with a machine motor. And that's a great thing because humans have musicality. We we push and we pull at musical time because that makes the music sound better. But if you're trying to play with an electronic tape, which is, let's face it, a very emergent practice in 1970, it's very new. So you're on the cutting edge of music, you're on the cutting edge of technology, and you somehow have to synchronize yourself with a tape. Now, it is the composer's job to make a great score for the performer so that they know when to play, that they know how to follow the tape. But nonetheless, this is a very difficult feat. So the Synchronisms number 6 was a wonderful piece from a technological standpoint. Also, it's quite beautiful from a musical standpoint. We're going to listen to a bit of it in a second. But I want to talk about its impact, not only as a Pulitzer Prize winner, that's wonderful, that speaks to the fact that it's an important piece, but from the point of view of a pianist for a moment. Now, in the history of piano, one thing is for sure. The instrument creates sound by striking a hammer against a string. It cannot crescendo a single note once it's been struck. Now, what do I mean by that? To crescendo is to get louder. And when a piano key is struck, there's no way to make it louder unless you strike it again. So a single note can't get louder once it's struck. Now, the opening note of Synchronism 6 is a piano note being struck, and the electronic tape part is used to subtly crescendo that note so that the entire sound profile of the instrument is changed in a single moment. That's an astonishing and subtle moment for Western musical history and for the history of the piano. With all of our digital technologies today, changing the sound of an instrument is very, very simple. But at the time, again, imagine trying to do it with nothing but a reel-to-reel tape recorder and a live pianist. 
Now, I find Davidovsky's own thoughts about this particular piece, the pieces in the series, to be quite interesting. He says, and I quote, In those works, I try to keep, on the one hand, as much as possible of what is characteristic of the electronic instrument, and, on the other, what is characteristic of the live performer. At the same time, each extends the other, end quote. So in this quote, Davidovsky is essentially telling us that not only does he see each piece as an individual composition, an individual work of art, but also as a way of extending the worlds of electronic music and instrumental music. For hundreds of years, instrumental music had held sway in concert culture. And now we were trying to not just extend electronic music into Western music, but into Western concert halls and into Western performances. So it was a groundbreaking set of pieces. But as both a composer and a pianist in the 21st century, so many decades later, I found the intersection of the piano part and the electronic part to be less than full. I knew there were many more ways as a composer and a pianist who now treated the instrument as a sound source. After years of expanding my musical repertoire, playing classical music to playing jazz and funk and experimental music, and I now realized I was capable of creating a piece that truly intersected those two worlds, the electronic instrument and the acoustic instrument. And as a performer, I was fluent in both languages. So it was a wonderful point of departure. Now, sympathetic resonance is a suite, and all that means is that it is several movements designed to be played together. And the original meaning of the term, a suite, was so that you would dance. Now, obviously calling my suite a suite and implying that one would dance to it is a little bit cheeky because unless you have a very unusual sense of rhythm, it's probably not going to move you to dance. But nonetheless, I find that it implies a sense of movement. And certainly when I'm playing the pieces, because I'm going back and forth in between the in, inside of the piano, the underside of the piano, the outside of the piano, I'm putting things in the piano, taking things out of the piano, playing the strings, playing the pegboard, playing the framework and the soundboard itself, playing the pedals, playing everything there is to play on the instrument. I am certainly dancing. So I've called this a suite. It is for piano, what I call digital audio installation, which is taking the original piece of Mario Davidovsky's, the original recording, and I'm going to play an excerpt for you, but I really encourage you to go listen even better. Go buy yourself a recording of Mario Davidovsky's synchronisms and listen to them when you get a chance. I took his entire piece as the audio installation of my work. I cut his up, I created my own installation out of it and extended the language of the piece by both performing electric sounds in the piano part live, but also allowing the piano parts from his original recording to resonate through the piano, which of course is a resonating instrument. So when I play this live, his original piece in, of course, my very cut up version is resonating the piano because it's being played through loudspeakers, actually vibrating the piano. That vibration is being picked up. That resonance is being picked up by the microphones in the piano and also being broadcast. So the idea of resonance is both in the moment, in the way 
His old work is resonating my piano in the moment, the way my work is resonating his work through the loudspeakers, and the way my composition is resonating with his through history, and the way both of our compositions are resonating through the history of the instrument. It's composed as an homage to Mario Davidovsky. Now, the name Attack is also a cheeky reference to the opening piano note because the attack of a piano note is very prominent and the fact that it's this first note, this attack of the entire piece, which is crescendoed, draws subtle emphasis to that particular note in my title. But also, and in the interest of full disclosure, Mario Davidovsky was my teacher, both of composition and electronic music. One of many, I have been very lucky and incredibly honored to study with some of the finest composers of the 20th century and the 21st century. Uh, Mario Davidovsky was my professor of composition and electronic music while I was at Columbia University. Now, the moment I say Columbia University, Many of you uh, who have been there um, will know that I'm talking of the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Studio up on 125th Street off of Broadway in New York. Now, why this is significant for our purposes is because this studio, which was put together in the 1950s by amazing composers like Usachevsky and Luning, who then extended it and welcomed Princeton into the mix with Milton Babbitt, and many of these early pioneers of electroacoustic music in the United States were composing music in this studio that consisted of old mixing boards that had pots to turn instead of sliders and faders that had patch bays that were designed for patch cables. Yes, that's right. We when we learned a system diagram, we had to follow it with actual signals, with actual cables. We had amplifiers with vacuum tubes that were bigger than a watermelon and sounded warmer than you can imagine. It was a wondrous studio filled with army surplus oscillators and ring modulators and envelope generators from the Second World War. And it was a noisy studio and it was a difficult studio. No recording booth. Oh, no separate recording booth. Of course not. And so recording in it took on a life of its own. Now, to be honest, Professor Davidovsky had a much different aesthetic from my own. And he certainly took the opportunity of my studies at Columbia to attack my aesthetics on many occasions. Now, that might sound like I'm bad-mouthing Professor Davidovsky, and I have to assure you that I am not. For composers, for any artist, it's often the people who push us the hardest that cause us to understand ourselves the most. And I appreciate and understand Professor Davidovsky's beautiful aesthetic and the technical difficulty in creating these beautiful, almost pristine audio works from a studio that would much rather blow you out of the water with feedback or give you crunchy sidebands every time you try to adjust the volumes. Anyway, so I have much respect for the man. But at the same time, my aesthetic embraced the noisy, the chaotic, the unexpected, the spontaneous. So it's no wonder that I've gone on to become an improviser and that's profoundly shaped my musical language. But at the same time, I appreciate the roots and where I've come from. I appreciate the contributions of every composer that I was lucky enough, honored enough to work with. And each of them has made a mark on my piece. 
So let's listen for a moment to Mario Davidovsky's Synchronisms number six and listen to that subtle moment when the history of the piano changes. You might miss it, so listen again. So that was about 53 seconds of the opening of Mario Davidovsky's Synchronisms number six. And you can hear that lovely opening crescendo on the first note. You can hear the pristine sound quality as well as the great use of stereo uh, spatialization, how he places individual sounds. So that was obviously something that I wanted to include in my piece as well. It's a very inspiring work. I encourage you to listen to the whole thing. So let me set the stage for you. Now that we understand the homage part of Sympathetic Resonance, this first homage to Mario Davidovsky, I want to set the stage for you. So you enter the concert hall and you see that there are many speakers on the stage. You see the grand piano is open and that there are microphone stands with microphones pointed inside. You also see that there is no music on the stand. There is a laptop and you see that the piano is filled with many objects that you don't normally find in a piano, like metal pot lids and strips of rubber and elastic bands and coins woven into the strings. And all of this is part of the piano preparation. And when the lights come down, you hear the opening of sympathetic resonance which is an extended meditation on that opening note of Davidovsky's synchronisms. So I take my time to explore that moment and in fact expand all the moments of his piece into a much longer work. So you take your seat and the lights go down and you try and sit as close to the front as you can because there's going to be a lot to see. And you settle in and enjoy the show.